Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, worship team. Our children invited the kids on worship at this time. If you want to do that, or you can stay in here with us, continue to worship. Good morning, Grantham Church. As always, it's good to see you in worship this morning. You know, really the first sin um, and the temptation to sin, if you think back in the garden, was the temptation not to trust God. And isn't that what we're always seemingly up against? Are we going to trust God or not? Are we going to believe God or not? Are we going to have faith or not? No matter what situation you find yourself in this morning, in some way or another, you could probably think about your challenge, your trial, uh, your doubts, right, uh, whatever it is, um, coming back to this, coming back to this. And we're going to look at that this morning. In the first message of a new series, we're starting a summer series today. It's called Saints and Sinners. Saints and Sinners. The bulletin that you have this morning gives a summary of this series. It says, the Bible is full of broken people that God used to further his redemptive plan for the world. Men and women whose stories of faith have not been sanitized or polished for our reading and reflection. You ever notice that? You're going to see that in this series. In fact, the inspired scriptures reveal that God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past, our shallow faith, our sin, our doubt, or our age and limitations. It doesn't matter. He's simply looking for people who will give him their heart and trust him with their life. So over the next 12 weeks, we're going to begin inviting you to see yourself in various characters of the Bible, to be challenged, to be encouraged, and also to be inspired to join a great cloud of witnesses, the author of Hebrews tells us. In this series, we'll be looking at men and women from both the Old and the New Testaments. And because there's so many biblical characters to choose from, I've tried to select a wide variety of folks that the biblical text reveals sufficient information about their background, uh, their brokenness and challenges, and reflects either a unique experience with God or gives us insight into the Lord's character and His ability to work in us and through us despite our shortcomings. And because we're limited to 12 weeks, there may be some biblical characters that that didn't make the cut, and and you may be a little disappointed by that. I'm sorry, Uh, but I do hope this series will at least motivate you to read your Bible and, uh, and look at some of these fascinating characters, these people of faith who were certainly not perfect. So to begin our journey this summer, I felt it, it only seemed right to begin with the one we refer to as the father of our faith, that being Abraham, in a message entitled, Abraham Learning to Trust God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you once again And uh, Lord, we intentionally just want to stop 
Be still. Lord, and invite you to speak to us. Our hearts are open to you. Our minds are open. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Reveal yourself to us. Jesus, set us free. Minister to our souls this morning, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to start by reading from Genesis 12 in just a moment. So you may want to go ahead and turn there, grab your Bible, turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. And as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context to what's come before Genesis chapter 12. The book of Genesis is a book of origins, right? It begins with God creating the world and making humankind in his image, setting us apart to be stewards and caretakers of his good creation. But we mess it up. You know this. In Genesis 3, sin enters the garden when Adam and Eve listen to the lies of the serpent and they give in to the temptation, right, to not trust God, that God has their best interest in mind, that God's design is best, that God loves them, that God can be trusted. And so they eat from the forbidden tree and from there things only get worse. Cain, as you know, kills his brother Abel. And then Cain goes off to build a city in his own image. From there, evil spreads like a virus across the land. Things get so bad that eventually God uses a flood to wipe out the wicked, allowing humanity to begin again. And he places a symbol of mercy in the sky, a rainbow, to remind the world that the flood was a kind of judgment that will not be repeated on the earth. But it's not long, and the people of the earth forget God, and they scoff at his mercy. In fact, they pretend that they're gods themselves. And we see this in the the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, the chapter that comes before the one we'll start reading in this morning. And the Tower of Babel is portrayed as a collective arrogance, a a full-on rebellion against God. You see, instead of filling the whole earth with his presence and, and creating diversity, humanity tries to create a monoculture in defiance of the Lord. This is what empires do. And so this time God sorts it out by scattering people throughout the earth into different tribes, ethnic groups, and languages to accomplish his will and move forward with his plan to redeem the world. And that plan begins with Abram later to be known as Abraham, the father, as I said, of our faith. We're told at the end of Genesis 11 that Abram is from the land of Ur, which was in the southern region of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the Middle East. And God has his, his eye on Abram. And for whatever reason, maybe it was Abram's disillusionment with his gods, a, a yearning maybe for something more, or his heart was simply ripe for faith. This happens. God then sets Abram apart to kick off his divine plan, to birth a nation that would trust him, right? To birth a nation that, that Yahweh could uniquely reveal himself and his desire to bless and redeem the whole world, which, of course, will ultimately come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to Genesis 12, where the story of Abraham begins. 
Let's look at that together. Some of the verses I'll have on the screen for us today, and then others I'm going to actually go to the text and read that verse by verse. So, so just hang with me, and you can follow along in your Bible. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 5. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, from your people, from your father's household, to the land that I will show you. And then verse 2 and 3 he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Notice this is the place where God begins to call out his people by making a promise of blessing that they would be a blessing to others. And no, that's a big deal. It's a big deal leaving everything that you know to follow a God that you don't know and just to do it on faith. And maybe some of you can relate to that in some way if you've moved across the country, you've left family behind. I know what that's like. This would have been even more difficult for Abraham living in a time where it's dangerous to, to do such a thing, like literally dangerous and to go on a, on a road to a faraway distant land. But yet this is what Abram does. The call of God begins with this promise. It's a vow, you see, to provide and to protect Abraham. And not only would all that be difficult, but the dude is old. <laughs> He's old when he does this. So all the more reason to pay attention to what God is doing and why he chooses to do this through Abram. God wants to bless him and everyone on the earth. Verse 4, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. This is his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. So Abram would have been considered well off, a, a sign of, of blessing and of favor in the ancient Near Eastern world. So somehow God's spirit was leading Abram to the land of Canaan. We don't know exactly why. He seems to know it to be true. And so he goes. And to get a visual, take a look at this map here. And you can find uh, Ur in the bottom right-hand corner where the red line starts. And this is what we believe to be the path that Abram uh, took all the way up to Haran up north and then back down to the land of Canaan. Now, later on in the Exodus story, Canaan will be called the promised land, right? You've heard of that before, the promised land. This is the land that God will eventually give to the Hebrew people where the kingdom of Israel will be established. But at this point in the story, Canaan is occupied by another tribe. You know who those people are? The Canaanites. <laughs> and their lives are bent toward evil. I'm going to say more about that shortly. So until God in his time gives the land, Abram will pit, pitch his tent in the Negev, which is the southernmost part of Canaan, a less populated desert-like region below the Dead Sea. And again, you can see that there on the map. And soon after in chapter 12, we learn that there is a severe famine in the land. And so Abram goes down to Egypt. Now the scripture tells us that 
not just once, but actually twice in the story of Abraham, for fear of his own life, he will lie to kings, first to Pharaoh in Egypt and then to Abimelech, and say that his wife is his sister. You remember that? So that they don't kill him and take her because she is beautiful. Of course, he can convince them of this because his wife Sarai has still not in her old age bore him any children. And so right away we can see that Abram is by no means perfect, right? Yet God will graciously work with imperfection and reward his faith and determination to follow him. And also if you read the rest of chapter 12, despite Abram's deception on a couple different occasions, the text says the Lord kept his promise to curse or protect his family by inflicting plagues on Pharaoh and his household for taking Sarai as his own. This is clearly a foreshadowing of the Exodus here in Genesis. As the story goes on, about 10 years later, Abram and Sarai, they grow impatient with waiting for God's promise. After all, God said he would make him a great nation. He would give him a land for his family. So he, he says to God, hey, if you don't do something, I'll have to adopt my servant and build this nation through him. And then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 4 and 5, the Lord responds. And, he, and the Lord says, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And, you know, I think we should see this when, when Abram's faith is wavering as God confirming his promise once again. I found this to be true of God myself. Maybe you have as well, right? When our faith is wavering, God sort of steps up, steps in, and confirms what it is that he said he would do. It really is an act of grace when we're failing to trust God. And, and what a great promise. God made this covenant with Abram and he says that he is going to keep his end of the deal. God will prove that he is faithful. Okay, but when? <laughs> that's what Abram is wondering. That's what he wants to know. And like Abram, that's what we'd like to know. Lord, I hear you saying this, but when? Can you give me more? But nothing. Silence. Abram and Sarai must wait, but it's hard to wait. Right? It, it, it tests our faith, especially when you feel that time is running out. And Lord, if you don't do something, if you don't do something soon, then, then there will be disaster. There will be negative consequences. And whether it was because Sarai was growing impatient or she felt that she was failing her husband, we can imagine that she might have felt that way, right? Her husband's told her God gave him a promise, but she's not producing. But only imagine how Sarai must have felt. And so she suggests that they take matters into their own hands. You know this part of the story? And you can look at this as a lack of faith in God. It, it is that in some sense. But you can also see it like this. God told me this was going to happen, so I'm going to help him along. <laughs> you ever done that with God? <laughs> right? I'm just going to help him along. Besides, maybe he's waiting on me to do something. 
So, so what, what does Sarai do? Listen to Genesis 16, verses 1 through 4. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had given him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Problem solved, right? No, not hardly. Because they refuse to wait and trust in God to act on their behalf, and in his time, they've now created another problem. Now Sarai and Hagar will both despise each other, right? Ishmael will be born, and a feud will begin between families that will last for generations. So Abram and Sarai see that this was wrong, and the reader can clearly see that Hagar has been terribly abused and mistreated. But we're told that God sees her. God sees her and promises to bless her and her descendants as well. So God continues to bail Abram out, just as he will do time and time again through the whole biblical story. Even though these fallible humans uh, keep making a mess of things and, and are a big mess themselves, as we'll see in this series, God is committed to them. God is committed to us. He uses messy, broken people because, folks, that's all he has to work with. Amen? And he's true to the covenant that he's made, which we now see God formalize with Abram in Genesis 17. Turn to Genesis 17, if you would. Look at verse 1. I'm going to go through this quickly. Significant moment in the story of Abraham. When Abram was 99 years old, <laughs> the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. In other words, is there, is there nothing that's impossible for me? I, I, I'm God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. Now, one way you could read this is knock it off and start believing me. Start trusting me. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground, and then God said to him, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Look at that, a father of a multitude of nations. So this has changed. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you'll be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations, which is what that name means. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God. Listen, listen to God pledging himself to broken people and the God of your descendants after you. Not just you, Abraham, but all those that come after you, I make a promise, I make a vow, I make a covenant. And I will give you the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. And then God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this 
continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. And you're thinking, this is weird, all right? Why? One scholar I read said, this should be seen as a sign of judgment. Think about what Abram had done with Hagar. A sign of judgment and the cutting off, but also a sign of mercy. Not just for Abraham, but for the nation to come. And then from generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. Any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking this covenant. Then God said to Abraham, Regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah. So both of them go and undergo a name change. In the Bible, this is significant for some sort of, sometimes a a spiritual awakening, something that God is doing in this person's life, a change. It marks a change. And he says, I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly. She will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. God's making it clear. (laughs) This is going to happen through you and Sarah. Then Abraham bowed to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. Not the first time we're going to see that in the Old Testament. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought. And how can Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? I mean, you've never questioned God like this, have you? I mean, when he tells you something, you're like, how can this be? This is what Abraham's saying. So Abraham said, you know what, God, I got a better idea. How about just use Ishmael? I mean, he he already exists. (laughs) That's already happened, you know? So let's just roll with that. But God replied, no. Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also, right? Notice how God cares for all people. I will bless him also, just as you've asked. I will make him extremely fruitful. I will multiply his descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac, who will be born to you, and Sarah, about this time next year. You see, what I find fascinating, folks, and I I don't want us to miss this, why is it that God is choosing to do it this way? If God is interested in blessing everybody, like, like he does with Hagar and he does with Ishmael, then why is he fixated on using Abraham? God wants to do things his way. <laughs> First off, God wants to do things his way. Do we trust his way? And God also wants to do things in a way where people know it's him. Where people know it's him. So God wants the glory for it. You see that? God wants the glory. So Abraham was 99 years old, this is verse 24, when he was circumcised, and Ishmael, his son, was 13. Both Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on the same day, along with the others in his house. And then it finally happens. Listen as I read Genesis 21, 1 through 5. Listen to this. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. 
Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, there he goes, Abraham circumcises him as well. And God commanded him, just as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. Now, have you noticed that, as I said before, God likes to work in ways that show off his glory instead of our own? And that's what he does here. And yes, Abraham's belief in God's call and promise has been proven true. His faith has been rewarded. But there's one more big test that comes some years later because God sees that there's more that needs to happen to establish an unwavering trust in him, that a whole nation can be built upon and lead to the Messiah. And we're not sure how old Isaac was at this point, but there is no doubt that this is the climax of Abraham's faith journey. And again, more foreshadowing of the things to come. Look at Genesis chapter 22, if you still have your Bible open. It's on the screen as well. But sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there is a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. What is happening here? Why is God commanding Abraham to do this? I mean, it's a, it's a troubling thing for God to ask a father to offer his son up as a human sacrifice even if it is a test. You know, I remember uh, studying this passage in seminary as I was, I was working on a paper and learning that some Jews in the intertestamental period, that's the period between the Old and the New Testament, proposed that Abraham may not actually have heard the voice of God, but was instead misled by the evil one, and then God stepped in to stop it. And, and the reason that they, they propose this is because in the Old Testament, there is no concept, no personal, not a, a personal beings of, of, of a Satan or, or demons. This is a, de a theological development that actually happens in the intertestamental period so that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's talking about Satan and the demons left and right. But some would say that since this was a progression in their theology and the main point in the Old Testament was understanding there's only one true and living God, then what happens is a lot of the bad stuff gets attributed to God as well as the good. And so through the theological development and understanding, know that there's actually a personal being named Satan and demons that oppose the will of God they begin to try to reconcile this. Now, you might not agree with that. That's okay. That's fine. But one thing you need to notice is that this really goes to show how they were wrestling with this story. You know, and if you don't wrestle with this story a little bit, I, you might check your pulse. I mean, this is a little troubling, isn't it? It is, especially if you're a parent. You, you can just, you, you imagine this. You put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Where's sandals, right? 
Imagine your child there. And after all, Isaac is the way God said he would fulfill his promise. So why this bizarre command? What is going on? You know, it's also striking that Abraham doesn't question or argue with God. Did you see this? I mean, earlier he has all kinds of bright ideas. And earlier he was saying, well, there's Ishmael. Why not just use him? But here, nothing. Crickets. Hmm. He just obeys. However, there is reason to believe that Abraham does see this as a test. At least he thinks that it is possible. A few verses later, we read that Abraham has begun the religious journey to what would later be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, to make a sacrifice with his son Isaac, something that they may have done before. And on the way, Isaac asks, Father, where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham replies, son, God himself will provide the lamb. Hmm. Is this a, a way of deceiving this unsuspecting boy, just like he deceived Pharaoh and Abimelech? Or does Abraham really believe this? Surely God would not do this. Maybe it reflects Abraham's sincere belief that God would not expect him to carry out this horrific, nightmarish act. You see, it, it, it's not just about God's promise, it's about his character. And remember, human sacrifice wasn't uncommon in the ancient world. In fact, the Canaanites, remember I told you, bent toward evil, they lived in the land and they practiced it. I mean, that's how, that's how bad these folks are. And it, this is a, a picture that's meaning to depict the Canaanite deity, Molech, and they, they've imagined different ways of this happening, but ultimately what's happening is offering your child to be sacrificed to this God to send the rain, you know, or, or whatever, to please him, to appease the deity. So while the thought of it would have been, of course, gut-wrenching to Abraham or any father in any generation, he heard of his neighbors doing this all the time. <laughs> huh. Maybe God was like the gods of the Canaanites. I mean, he's just getting to know him. Or maybe he's not. And maybe that's part of the lesson. Maybe that's part of the lesson. Listen again as I pick up with Genesis 22, verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. And the Lord says, now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now I know. What a traumatic experience that this would have been. Something Abraham and Isaac would never, ever forget. And if they were to tell Sarah something she, we could imagine, would never forgive Abraham for. So why would God test Abraham like this? Brothers and sisters, I've said this before when I've preached this text. I don't know. 
I don't know why God allows us to undergo what James calls in the New Testament the trials and the tribulations that test our faith. How many times I wish I knew. You know, in the moment, it would at least give you some clarity and some focus that God's got this, right? We say that. Just to know, where is it all going? God, why are you allowing this? And I don't know. And I know you don't know either. (laughs) I don't know why God sometimes asks us to do things that don't make a lot of sense. I don't know why, or maybe I should say I mostly don't like that God works in our lives in this way, but I do know this. And I believe this because Jesus shows us what God is like and what God has always been like. Though we've not always known it, we know it now. I know this. The tests are not for us to fail. God wants us to succeed, that we would know him, truly know him, and know that our faith is genuine and that we would trust not only in what God can do, but more importantly, who he is that he is loving and that he's not like those other gods. Sometimes we need, maybe we, we can benefit from an experience that locks it in, that we will never forget it. So God allows us to go through the fire to be tested. This is what changes us it, it, it's, what, it's what moves us from Abram to Abraham. <laughs> this creation of faith in us when we go through unforgettable tests and trials. But again, they're not for us to fail. Oh, no. Because God is loving. He's faithful and he's good. He's not like the other gods and he's not like us. Amen. And you know, when it's all said and done, let's be clear about Genesis 22. God doesn't want the killing. God doesn't do the killing. What does God do? God provides the sacrifice, right? He provides the sacrifice. And as he reveals in Christ, he makes a way out for us. You see, my friends, it's it's not hard to see the coming sacrifice of Jesus, his son, his only son, thousands of years before Jesus would walk the earth. It's all being foretold in this story. Just as there are connections back to the garden, there there are signposts pointing us forward into the future. Not just of the exodus, but the ultimate salvation, the ultimate redemption, the ultimate freedom from sin and from death. And finally, Genesis chapter 22, verse 15. It says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies eventually, right? And though you're, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Remember that, that text. Now I know. 
I was meeting with a group of guys this past week and we were talking a little bit about this, like how we live in, a, in the best possible of worlds that God could create. We know it's sinful, we know it's broken, but it's the best possible world. God didn't create automatons. He didn't create robots. He gives us a choice. And you see, life is a lot, a lot like, and the older generation will get this, a, a choose your own adventure book, right? And we've got some video games that are kind of like this. You can make this decision at this point in the game and that's gonna head you off in a completely different direction. And here we have one of those moments for this broken, messy, man called Abraham who makes the right decision and sends not only his life but a whole nation in a direction of blessing. And today we still have the same choice. What adventure will you choose? Will you make a decision of faith or of unbelief? So what are some other lessons and takeaways for Abraham's life and faith journey. I just put them all up on the screen at the same time here. Real quickly, what can we learn from Abraham's life? Well, certainly he was a man of his time, as they say. And you know what? So are you. So are we. We sometimes forget this in our arrogance and our chronological snobbery, you know, that somehow those folks are just stupid and didn't understand anything. But, you know, about 100 years from now, people are going to look back on our generation and say, what were they thinking? Pumping the atmosphere full of carbon and locking it all in, heating up the planet. What were they thinking? Thinking you can deviate from God's design and his plan for your life and the way nature and creation is supposed to work. What were they thinking? But, oh, right now we think we're enlightened. Right now, we think we can get away with anything, don't we? So I say this to humble us. Let the Lord humble you because you are also a person of your time. You just don't always see the water you're swimming in. So goes the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament for that matter. Also, we can learn this. Like Abraham, we're gonna get it wrong. We're gonna get it wrong. You can count on that. <laughs> I have to said this before, I love this episode in The, the Chosen about Jesus' life, you know, and Mary Magdalene sort of kind of, uh, she, she did some backsliding and then she eventually comes back to Jesus. She's just distraught and Jesus says to her, what did you think you were never gonna sin again? <laughs> did you never think you were going to sin again? Abraham got it wrong, we're gonna get it wrong, but it's what you do after you have fallen, folks. Despite our sins, God will graciously bless us and use us if we will go on trusting him. And yes, God will test us to grow our faith. But we gotta keep believing. Don't listen to the lie of the serpent. We gotta keep believing that God does love us, that God isn't keeping something from us, that God wants to bless us, and that God's way is best. And then lastly, we see that Abraham was both a saint and a sinner, and you're gonna see this all throughout this series. Saints and sinners, There's, there, there isn't a category just for saints in this and just for sinners. All of the people that we're gonna look at are both, just as you and I are both. And so to help us reflect and respond to this message this morning, as you think about Abraham, Ask yourself, number one, can you see yourself in Abraham? Any at all? 
Think about that for just a moment. Any bonehead decisions like he did? Try to bargain with God. What about this, God? (laughs) Number two, how's God inviting you to include him in your decision making and pray for his guidance? You know, I I think too often today we, we think God's given us our brain, which is true. He wants us to use it, wants us to think. This is true, but he also wants us to talk to him. He also wants us to invite him into our decision-making about our life. And, and folks, I, I, it's happened to me. I've seen it happen to some of you. When we don't do this, we really do bring on more trouble into our life. So how is God inviting you to include him in your decision-making and pray for his guidance? And then lastly, number three, will you trust God with what seems impossible? And maybe you're dealing with fears and anxiety and temptation and trials. You're worried about the future. I seem to do that more and more these days. So this is a question for me as well. Will we trust God? Will we trust God? Because it's in the trusting of God that the Lord can finally have his way with his people. I hope that you'll do that this morning. Whatever that looks like, wherever you are in your journey, as you continue to reflect on the message and prepare to respond to God's voice, listen to this helpful proverb and be encouraged by it, church. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he'll make your path straight. Or as Eugene Peterson said it in his message Bible, trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do. Everywhere you go, he's the one who'll keep you on track. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the story of Abraham and specifically his faith. And Lord, despite his shortcomings, his failures, being a man of his time, as we all are, Lord, you pour out your mercy and your grace upon him. Lord, we know we're going to see some form of this through all of the people in this series. And so as we go through this series, Lord, would you help us, help us to know your grace and your mercy for ourselves. Help us to know that you're loving and that you're good and that you can be trusted. Speak to us, Lord. For your servants are listening. 